and then also consider at the time of death, do you think that you can have a positive attitude and remember the Dharma so that this karma will ripen in having a good future rebirth? How do you react to things today when that happen that you don't like or you don't expect? So how do you think you'll respond at the time of death? And then understanding how bodhicitta is so important for creating merit. So generate that thought now and have a determination to keep it in your mind because it will be a powerful cause for a good rebirth next time. So there we were just thinking about one of the many causes for precious human life. Yeah, the one that uh, gets us just the human life. But there's other causes to create uh, that bring about the precious part, which we'll get into uh, this evening. Before we do, um, somebody asked a question that I thought I'd answer. And um, see if I can read my own writing here. Um, So I had uh, mentioned last week, you know, that there's some there's degeneration, and and at some point there won't be teachers and there won't be texts. And so somebody uh, heard that and started uh, thinking about the the different prophecies, you know, and how the there's the cyclical world and, you know, the eons creates and exists and degenerates and, and um, you know, uh, and the whole idea of the Armageddon kind of, no, the apocalypse kind of thing that's very prominent in, in Christian religions, and there's a certain kind of version of it uh, in the Kala Chakra Tantra, too. Uh, so this person was saying, um, how do we put this in a helpful context? 
Okay, that was her question. Because it seems to me that uh, just from reading her question that when she heard this uh, stuff, she was going into fear and also um, discouragement. You know, like if the Dharma's disappearing, we're in a Dharma degenerate age and the Dharma's disappearing and, you know, what hope is there and, and, you know, yeah, this kind of discouragement and fear about it. So she's asking, how do we put that in a good light? First of all, when I was uh, mentioning it last week, when I said, you know, the, that there will be a time, you know, when we don't have so many good teachers and texts and so on, I wasn't talking about this kind of Dharma degenerate age or Dharma ending thing or any of that stuff. Um, personally speaking, I don't find those prophecies uh, very helpful at all because, uh, you know, as His Holiness says, you don't know what the future is going to be until it happens. So I would rather not live my life as if there's a preordained future where, uh, you know, all these kinds of things are going to happen. I don't think of, I don't think that's very helpful for me in my practice at all. The reason I meant to mention this, those two things last time was just in terms of right now when I look around, yeah, the quality of the teachers, uh, that, when when I started the Dharma, I mean, we kind of came along at the tail end of these incredibly high, I mean, stupendous spiritual mentors, you know. And then in the early 80s, so many of them died, you know, except for His Holiness and a few others, you know. And then even after that big wave died, then, you know, some of my own personal teachers who I really treasure have died. And I, and, you know, there's still some of my teachers that are alive, but I don't see the quality in the younger generation that I saw in the previous um, Ling Rinpoche, for example, the previous Serkal Rinpoche, the previous Song Rinpoche. Their incarnations are alive, but they're still very young. We can't see their qualities. Some of them, you can see they're, they're going to be really great masters. But also just in, in a wide way, I, I don't, uh, I feel like I came along just at the tail end of uh, an incredible thing. Yeah. So I wasn't talking about any of these prophecies or stuff. And when I said about there will be a time when the texts don't, don't exist, there I was thinking about what happened in Tibet with the Chinese communist occupation, where they took texts and they burned libraries, you know, and a few people were like just amazing in terms of getting texts out of there, but surely some were lost, you know, and they've had to go through a really uh, a lot of difficulty in finding many of those texts and, and reprinting them and so on. So just just to to look, you know, the way our world is now and what people value, um, you know, people 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> when I was thinking <laughs> about that first question I asked you to look at the people around, and I just started with, you know, the people who are famous in our culture. And, you know, and you can see it's, it's dismal in terms of, of ethical conduct. So in speaking about this, the purpose is not to make us discouraged or forlorn or fearful. The purpose is to see what we have now isn't always going to be there. And so to, uh, how do they say, make hay while the sun is shining, um, you know, use the opportunities that we have now to study with whatever great masters there are. Use the opportunities to, to learn the Dharma. Don't take things for granted. Yeah? So the, this talk about, you know, those kind of things is to shake us out of our complacency because we tend to just feel like, well, it's just going to stay the same, you know? Like, well, yes, people are going to die, but, you know, not my teachers. And anyway, uh, I'll, I'll die before them. Or, you know, we, we don't really understand the preciousness of our opportunity, and so we squander it a lot. So what I was saying was in, in that context to get us to see uh, what we have and how important it is to to use it. Yeah. Okay. So I hope that clears it up for that person. Did anybody else have? Yeah. When I first heard teachings on this topic, I was a very new Buddhist and I was initially very shocked, but it actually increased my faith because I realized, oh, of course, even the teachings themselves are dependent arising. Like, oh, duh, yeah. the Buddha didn't say, oh, they're just going to last forever. It's the, mm -hmm. the, you know, truth, capital T, emblazoned in gold. So that increased mm -hmm. my faith. And as you said, it really got me to think about, wow, what can I do to help to create the conditions for the Dharma to flourish in this world? Yeah. From my side to or, and to connect with them. Um, it really got me going to class as a new Buddhist. Like, well, my mm -hmm. teacher's not going to be here all the time. This class is not going to be here all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and it helps me a lot with uh, studying difficult material mm -hmm. that I may not understand. It's like, I mean, who else is studying the Pramana Vartika? How many people, right? Yeah. <laughs> How are we going to get teachings on this? I'm just going to bite the bullet and sit it through. <laughs> and I hope if I make an imprint in my mind, it helps the text to survive. Sometimes mm -hmm. I think of it that way too, yeah. or just reciting and making a text live. Right. So, yeah, I mean that's how we get things to to survive because there's the transmitted dharma, which are the texts and the words, and then the realized dharma, which are the ex the experiences and the realizations, and so. Uh, we may not be able to be the great Dharma holders who uh, who hold all the teachings, but we can do our part to, you know, make the teachings exist, make, you know, uh, some experience of them exist. Yeah. And I know when I when I was a baby nun and I got sent off to Italy, yeah, um, for. For a long while before uh, Geshe Hashitokhtin came, there was no teacher there. I was it. Yeah. And when, 
And I was really a baby, you know, a baby nun at that time. And okay, there were some, a few other Sangha members, but they were, you know, younger than, than me, inexperienced. And, you know, when I came to do the seven limb prayer to, to request teachings and to request the Buddhas to, to stay in the world, I really had some strong energy behind that because I was in a situation where I didn't have teachers there. And it really showed me the limit of what I was able to do uh, without having that guidance. Yeah. So uh, it's in that kind of light to spur us on that we talk about these things. Okay. Okay, so we're talking about precious human re- rebirth. Um, usually, they, they uh, you know, there's various topics under what the what it is. So the the eight freedoms and the ten fortunes, um, how it's difficult to attain its meaning and purpose. Okay, so right now we're at the section on rare and difficult to attain. Okay, this is the bottom of 187. So the Buddha did not exaggerate when he said that receiving all the conditions necessary for a precious human life is not easy. Looking at the current world population, we may think a human life is easy to come by. However, Not all human beings have the 18 qualities of a precious human life that give them the best opportunity to practice the Dharma. And that's really true, isn't it? I mean, our world population is increasing, without a doubt. But are those with people who have the interest in the Dharma, who have the opportunity to study it, who have faith, Yeah, when you think, you know, of all those 18 qualities and look around, how many people really have all 18? Now, there's many people that may have, you know, 10 or 16 or whatever, but having all of them, yeah. So we actually have to even check ourselves if we have all of them or not. Yeah, they usually teach it as if we had all of them as a way of encouraging us. But I heard one Lama say, uh, you know, when somebody was talking about their obstacles, uh, saying, well, see if you have all 18, or maybe you're missing one or two or three or whatever. Okay? Um, But definitely in our world, even you look around, I mean, our families, do your families have precious human lives? They have human lives. Do they have precious human lives? Yeah. Your best friends when you were a lay person, do they have precious human lives? They, They could be good people. They could be ethical people and kind people. But do they have all 18 qualities of a precious human life? You know, even some of the people that, that we see around us at Dharma teachings and all, do they have all 18? And can you have some of them at one point in your life and then lose them? 
Okay. So uh, to really think like that instead of just assuming, uh, oh, yeah, you know, everybody has this. It's no big deal. Uh, it's not so easy. I mean, really, think of your family. Do your family members have the 18 qualities? Mine don't. You know, my friends from high school or college, no. So we may, you know, be very close to some people, but, yeah, are, do they really have a precious human life? It's really difficult. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is there a substantive difference between the precious human life of somebody on the Shravaka path and somebody who aspires for Mahayana path? Is there a difference in the Shravaka path and Mahayana path? Somebody, the 18 qualities. No, but I'm asking you, is there a difference? There is a difference. Yeah. Hmm. But this is uh, before you even get into the middle scope, so it's the initial scope. Right. Yeah. So in one way, you could say the precious human life is the same, but in the the element about having faith in what it, you know, both people on both Shravaka path and Mahayana path have faith in what is right and in faith in the in the um, three higher trainings. Yeah, that's there. But when you really think of a precious human life in a Mahayana context, then there's a difference, isn't there? Because there's a difference uh, in the path, and so there's going to be a difference in the disposition of the people that are attracted to that path. Yeah. So they may all have precious human lives, but different kinds of precious human lives. Yeah. Okay, are you getting what I'm saying? Yeah? Okay. So just just to, I mean, check with yourself. Would, would you want to have a precious human life that is more attracted to the Shravaka path than, than to the Mahayana path? Would you want to have, it's a precious human life, but is that the kind that you would want? Yeah, I would want one where I have access and inclination and faith in the Mahayana path. Mm -hmm. This came up during offering service, and I thought it was a good question. Venerable Pema brought up the, the doubt about, would a Sravaka be practicing the six perfections? Uh, yeah, so that that is said in a Mahayana context, but you can also say it in a Shravaka context, practicing generosity, ethical conduct, fortitude. They have, they have paramitas also. So it's just here we're studying a book that's written in the Mahayana context. So they say the perfections. But then we have to ask, are we practicing the perfections? Because to actually have it be a perfection, you have to have the bodhicitta. So do we have the bodhicitta when we're practicing generosity? I don't know about you, but I don't. Okay. So, the, you know, they talk about it in that context, but uh, it could also be talked about 
in in just a regular thing of practicing regular generosity and and so on. Yeah, because we call ourselves Mahayana practitioners, but is my generosity any better, really, than that of somebody else? Okay, maybe I have contrived bodhicitta from time to time, but it's certainly not the perfection of of uh, any of those six or ten. Okay. Okay, some people lack interest in spiritual matters. Yeah, so think about that. How many people there are who just totally lack interest in spiritual matters? Yeah, my family, you know, not interested at all. Yeah. Okay, other people cannot meet qualified teachers and teachings. They meet Charlatananda. Yeah, they become Charlatananda's disciple. Charlatananda, a charlatan, a, a charlatan, a charlatan, a, a, a teacher who's a, a charlatan. Yeah, one of my friends called Charlatananda, you know, because all these swamis had the name Ananda. So, charlatan. Non charlatan Ananda. Yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, we all know how many people who, who are called teachers are really qualified. Yeah. And we look at some of the scandals going on, even among teachers who are said to be really excellent teachers, and then you watch some of the behavior. So, yeah. Okay, so it's hard to meet qualified teachers and teachings, and it's hard to have a mind that can differentiate between the two. Yeah, so I think I've told you this, this story of my friend who had a PhD in physics who met, you know, a Hindu charlatananda and followed this guy for years because this Swami said, you know, you're the perfect disciple I've been waiting for. And he was flattered and followed that guy until he realized that the Swami was sexually abusing his two daughters. Yeah. So, um, oh, and there was an, another person that some of you may know, but um, she, long ago, when she was in Seattle, she was coming to DFS. She was also going to this other group. And the teacher in the other group, she was telling me one day he, he would drink, and one day he was passed out on the sidewalk. And she said to me, oh, I really appreciate how you keep ethical conduct. But she kept going to his center and receiving teachings from him, you know? So um, she came to DFF too, but, you know, she she kept going there. So you can see that it's hard, you know? So much depends on the karma we've created in the past, what teachers were attracted to. Yeah, and that's where 
I know I feel just incredibly lucky. I don't know what I did in the past to have met the teachers I have this life because I've had wonderful, spectacular teachers, you know, and I look in this life and there's no way I created the karma for that in this life, you know. And I could have bumped into Charlatananda too. Actually, the the first Dharma talk I went to was... I only went to, there was a big thing at UCLA, he was teaching, I won't mention who, but he was one of the ones who's had a big scandal after him. And that was the first Dharma talk I ever went to. I never went back or explored that center, but I went to that talk. Now, why didn't I go back and, like, join that? Yeah? I mean, I was naive, I was stupid you know why why did i not go with that and instead i i went to bodhi tree bookstore and saw a flyer about uh, a retreat at lake arrowhead taught by mama yashin lama sopa you know see when you look at these kind of things it's like you see there's so much has to do with the karma we created in the past and the prayers we made in the past, you know, to, to meet these teachers this lifetime. Yeah, one time um, after one of our, in the early 90s, we had some, was it in 93 and 94, some meetings of Western Buddhist teachers with His Holiness. And after that, uh, in one of those meetings, Alex Burson, he's an old friend of mine, he and I were talking. And we were both like just marveled because in the meetings, we were hearing the stories from these other people, you know, who were from different Buddhist traditions, all the different traditions, and hearing what happened with their teachers. And Alex and I were like, like, wow, you know, how did we get so lucky? Yeah, it was just astounding when you heard the, some of these stories of what was going on. So, you know, it's it's not easy. It's not easy. Yeah. So there's no reason to be arrogant when we have good qualities because, you know, if we're still very foolish, we could easily lose these good qualities in the next life. Yeah. So that's why it's so important to always make really strong prayers to meet fully qualified Mahayana and Vajrayana teachers because that's it's so important, you know. Okay, so some people lack interest in spiritual matters. Others cannot meet qualified teachers and teachings. Some people live without religious freedom. Okay, like in one of the communist countries or... Uh, I mean, even in China right now, supposedly it's loosened up. It's not like in the Cultural Revolution. But they just, you know, made thousands of the monks and nuns at what it wasn't. Some are in Larangar, where they had like 5,000 monastics. And the government went in and made a bunch of them disrobe. We saw pictures. They had to line up and recite communist propaganda. You know, they get kicked out of the monastery. The government burned their places down. Well, the government, the reason they used was that it was a fire hazard. But then they went in and 
burn many of the houses down. Not yeah, not too long ago, just like in the last year or two. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, some people live without religious freedom. Others face hindrances, hindrances such as starvation, war, illness, and industry. Uh, industry injury. I mean, imagine you're living in a, in a war-torn country. How are you going to practice the Dharma? Yeah? How are you going to practice when there's bombs around you and people shooting each other and you're getting it conscripted into the army or, you know, you have to flee from your home and you become a, a refugee and, you know, or when you're very, very ill, how do you practice? Uh, very difficult, okay? So these kinds of things that make practice extremely difficult. Contemplating that lacking even one of the 18 conditions interferes with all others bearing fruit. That's the thing, you know? Like, yeah, I mean, our kitties, I, I don't know that they have faith in what's right and good, but, you know, they have many of those 18, but they don't have a human, have human intelligence. Yeah, or when I was telling you about those uh, kids in Denmark who were severely, you know, uh, handicapped with, and so on, you know, no possibility. They had a beautiful life. Yeah, toys galore. Yeah, and food and every very comfortable, but ugh, no possibility to practice. Okay. So contemplating that lacking even one of the 18 conditions interferes with all others bearing fruit helps us to see that we are extremely fortunate and must not take this opportunity for granted. Yeah? And so if we have this really firmly in our mind, then when our mind starts to get all upset about some stupidagio, we, we can cut it and say, you know, I have a precious human life. What am I wasting my time thinking about this for and getting upset about this? This is ridiculous. Yeah, so it's, it's very helpful for dropping a lot of this stuff. So we must not take this opportunity for granted, but use it to create the causes for full awakening. Array of Stocks Sutra speaks of the difficulties of attaining each condition of a precious human life. So this, this is quite interesting here. Yeah. So it's hard to avoid unfavorable conditions. So it's hard to avoid lower realms. There's many more beings born in the lower realms than there are in the upper realms. And you just look around us on our land, are there more human beings or more animals? Yeah, and animals including insects. Can we even count the number of insects on this land? Yeah? You know, even our two anthills as you walk up the path. Can we even count how many ants there are in there? And then plus, you know, all the rest of the 
the bugs and so on. Okay? So it's just numerically, it's, it's much easier to be born in a lower realm. Yeah? Maybe 20 years ago, a friend of mine told me he'd read in a scientific magazine that there was an estimate of animals, including insects, and that for every human being, there was something like 10 to the 23rd and on this planet, just on this planet. Wow. And that number is quite 10 to the 23rd, wow. And especially if you consider fish and all the little creatures in the ocean, too. Yeah. Okay. It's hard to find a human birth. So that's just by creating the ethical conduct necessary. That's difficult. It's hard to remove error and doubt about the right opportunity. So it's hard for us to even recognize that we have a precious human life. You know? So doubt about the right opportunity, doubt that we have a good opportunity to practice. You know? How much of us see that? We doubt it. We uh, have mistaken ideas about it. It's it's not easy to, to just see our circumstances and appreciate it. It's also hard uh, to find a Buddha in the world. Yeah, so difficult, huh? It is hard also to have all of our sense faculties in order. So how easy it is to have, you know, our, our sense faculties not function properly so that it's an impediment to learning. Yeah, to have, you know, very, very severe uh, gaps in intelligence, very severe mental illness, you know, all sorts of things like that. It's, it's not, you know, so many people have those kind of hindrances. It is hard also to hear the Dharma teaching of a Buddha. Yeah, how often do we even have the teaching of a Buddha? I mean, we happen to live in a time where the Buddha's scriptures are still alive. We we miss the chance to meet the Buddha. There's we've met some really holy beings, yeah, but it's uh, it's not easy to to live in a time when we have that kind of opportunity around us. It is hard also to meet people of truth, so holy beings. Yeah, it's it's not easy. It's not easy. We we just got an invitation for the another uh, Western international Western Buddhist manas no teachers gathering. Okay, and they had a big picture of uh, the last one, and I counted about. Ten monastics in there among huge number of people. So, um, I mean, some of those people may be bodhisattvas. Some of them may have realizations. I have no idea. But I know for myself, yeah, I need a teacher who's a monastic because I need that kind of example to tame my mind. Yeah. That that's what would you know would would really work well for me. Um, so it's it's hard to meet people like that. Yeah, 
Uh, it's hard to find authentic spiritual masters. Yeah. Again, you know, you look all around. Uh, His Holiness talks about people who are in the in the Tibetan community who are nobody, but they come to the West, and all of a sudden they're his eminence, you know, so and so Tulku Rinpoche, uh, you know, Dorji Chong, something with a whole string of titles after them. You know, His Holiness talks about that. Yeah, and then you know. It, yeah, you just, <laughs> I mean, sometimes you, you just read some of the stories of what goes on in Dharma centers, you know, especially, yeah, it's just astounding. People who who have the name teacher, kind of what they do, yeah. So it is uh, hard also to find, okay, uh, to find authentic spiritual masters. It is hard also to receive genuine guidance and instruction. You know, so from people who know what they're talking about, who can tune in to where we are at, who know the proper way of doing things. Yeah. There was one, one Western, um, somebody, I won't mention names, who was wearing robes and who had a wife. And I saw a picture in one of his publications of him ordaining somebody uh, with his wife sitting next to him, and the two of them were ordaining this person together. And you can't give monastic ordination if you're married with a wife and your wife can't be part of the sangha community giving the and this was somebody who's very well known who a lot a lot a lot of people followed and people were saying oh he's fantastic he's such a great teacher he's realized emptiness and i saw that picture i went whoa yeah Okay, it is hard also to live right in the human world, so to have a right livelihood. Yeah, so as a monastic, it's hard to have support. I mean, how many monastics go out and have jobs and have to put on lay clothes, grow their hair and have jobs? And how many Tibetan Sangha want to come over to America and they would much prefer to wash dishes in New York than to be a monk because their family needs money. If they're over here and they wash dishes in New York, they make money. Maybe they meet a nice, you know, American girl who they can marry. Yeah. So it's hard to have the right livelihood, and it's hard to have your mind in the right place where you want to live like a monastic. I told you about the one place I, I went to in the Midwest, the Dharma Center, where the the lay teacher there wore clothes that looked like monastic robes and shaved his head, and he had a wife and a home. And they had a monk that was living there, and every time I saw the monk, almost, he was in lay clothes. Yeah? Okay. It is also uh, hard to carry out the Dharma in all respects. So it's hard for us to maintain our commitment to the Dharma and to carry it out. Yeah? 
And especially now with all the digital stuff, we get so easily distracted, myself included, you know, reading the news. And, you know, you're taught your whole life can go by. So we must look inside and ask ourselves, is the question that I was talking about at the beginning of the meditation. We must look inside and ask ourselves, do we have all the factors that guarantee having a similar precious human life in the future? Firm ethical conduct, training in the six perfections, and sincere dedication prayers are needed, as are cultivation of stable faith and correct wisdom. Yeah. So we're all working to develop those, but, you know, to what extent are they developed? Yeah. Ethical conduct is the cause for a human rebirth. So that just gets us to an upper rebirth, you know. And if we don't dedicate for a human rebirth, we could wind up being born in the God realm. And then that creates its own set of obstacles. Training in the six perfections results in having the conducive circumstances to practice dharma. Generosity in this life results in receiving food, shelter, clothing, and medicine in future lives. Yeah, so if we want to practice, we need those four requisites. How do we get them? It's by being generous in this lifetime. Okay. Joyous effort in this life enables us to accomplish our goals in future lives. Yeah, if we're always starting and stopping, starting and stopping, never finishing projects, yeah, then that becomes a habit. It creates the cause never to, to accomplish our goals in future lives, too. Okay. Um, yeah. Fortitude, you know, patience, being able to endure, endure difficulties. Yeah. If, if we create it now, then we can have friends and, and Dharma companions in future lives. We can have a good, you know, a, a pleasant face so that people want to be with us. But if, you know, we're always just like so argumentative and growling at people, you know, then both this life and next life, people won't want to be around us. Okay. Um, you know, concentration, if we can build it up, then we can concentrate in future lives. Wisdom, if we plant the seeds for wisdom through our, our study and, and practice this life, we can, you know, have those imprints in future lives. Yeah, so we need to really have a long-term view in our practice and not just think about one lifetime, but think about many lifetimes and what can I do in this lifetime that will plant the seeds and set the stage for the conditions I want to have in future lifetime and what I want to be able to accomplish in future lifetimes. Okay. Sincere dedication prayers to have a series of precious human lives. 
Yeah, so not just one in the next life, but a series of them. Yeah, so that we can attain full awakening, direct our merit so that it will ripen accordingly. Okay, so what do you know? Do we take time to dedicate our merit? I know often at the end of the day, I'm really tired and it's like my dedication's really quick. Yeah, how many times do we chant the dedication prayer but our mind's thinking about what we're going to do next? Yeah. Okay. And then, you know, what do we dedicate for? Yeah, do we dedicate for precious human life? Do we dedicate to meet good teachers? Or do we dedicate to to be rich? Do we dedicate to be an important person, to meet the Dharma, but to be an important person in the Dharma group, you know, so that we can have some status or something like that? Okay. Um, once when Lama Zopar was teaching, and uh, he said something that I found really inspiring. He said, uh, if we do things with the motivation of bodhicitta, or our, our goal is enlightenment, then not only will the result be enlightenment, but mm -hmm. it will be Everything. all the good things on the way to enlightenment, yeah. rebirths in our future lives, all the realizations of the path, da-da-da-da-da. And then after becoming enlightened, being able to help all sentient beings throughout the universe, throughout time, and blah, blah, yeah. blah. So it's like the the benefit of doing things for a bodhicitta motivation. So then I was thinking, well, even if we if we don't dedicate specifically for a precious human rebirth, you'll still get one, huh? If if you've dedicated with bodhicitta, even if you don't dedicate specifically for precious human life, you'll either get one or you'll be born in the pure land. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure yeah. It's like you know, if if you aim to 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 go th to go to Seattle, you're gonna pass through Spokane and Moses Lake on the way. You don't have to, you know, aim specifically to for Spokane and Moses Lake and everywhere else in between. So that means it isn't necessary, absolutely, to make specific dedication for precious human beings. Yeah. It's already covered in your yeah. They they, they make it sound like if it's it's already covered, but I think it's good, you know to also dedicate for a precious human life or dedicate for rebirth in a pure land, you know, so that we kind of have that in our mind too. Um, in this context, living in pure ethical conduct refers chiefly to abandoning the ten destructive pathways of action, killing, stealing, unwise sexual behavior, Lying, creating disharmony, harsh words, idle talk, coveting, maliciousness, and wrong views. It also involves taking and keeping any of the Pratimoksha ethical codes, those for monastics or lay followers. Okay, so, uh, you know, taking precepts is one of the best ways to accumulate the kind of karma we need for a precious human life so that we can continue to practice, yeah? Um, precepts are really a treasure because every moment you're not breaking them, you're accumulating merit. And also every moment you're not breaking them, you're putting in your mind that habit 
to live ethically, which makes it easier, you know, in our next life to live ethically too. So, um, yeah. So it's really precious. And then, yet, we, how many people do we meet who love going to Dharma teachings, but they don't want to take precepts, even the five precepts? Or maybe they, they want to take three or four of the five precepts. Yeah. It, it's very interesting, you know, if we don't really see the preciousness of this life in the big uh, in the big view of what it is in terms of what samsara and nirvana, then we don't appreciate the opportunities that we have. And, you know, like giving up drinking just seems impossible. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing. Most people, there's a lot of people who want to take the four precepts, but not the last one. And, they, most of them, they don't say, I like to drink or, you know, or anything. But they say, my husband, my wife, my family, this is a family custom. Uh, my spouse, it relaxes us after work. It's, it's usually in conjunction with another person. Not always. Sometimes people will say, well, I like it. But it's usually in conjunction to fitting in or not sticking out when you're with other people. Yeah. And I find that so interesting because these are the same people who teach their kids, don't be influenced by peer pressure. Think for yourself. Make your own decisions. Yeah. It's quite interesting. Okay. Doing this, uh, so taking any of the sets of precepts, requires some conviction in the infallibility of the law of karma and its results. So again, how many people have that conviction in karma? Yeah. I mean, even us, sometimes, we talk about karma, I talk about karma, talk about karma, but when my mind gets inflamed with something, well, you know, I really have to inform this person that I'm not angry, I'm, I'm really not angry, but I'm doing it for their good because they really overstepped the boundaries. Yeah? And we rationalize it, justify it, and, you know, and yet we say, oh, I believe in karma. <laughs> yeah. But not always. <laughs> not always. When it's advantageous for us, our view of karma kind of gets renegotiated. Mm. We know that every conditioned phenomenon arises due to its preceding causes and conditions. This is the general interdependent nature of causes and effects. Within that exists one type of cause and effect, karma and its results. Karma, sentient beings, volitional, physical, verbal, and mental actions, 
depends on our virtuous and non-virtuous motivations and produces our experiences of happiness and suffering. All sentient beings, so, you know, we say that, but, you know, sometimes getting yourself out of bed in the morning to go to practice, you know, it's like pulling teeth or, yeah. It's like, and then, oh, I'm really exhausted. If I get up and go to practice, I'm going to get sick. And then I won't be able to practice for the next week. So better I just sleep in this morning. Then I won't get sick, even though we have no signs of getting sick. But we make something up. Yeah? Okay. All sentient beings, except those in the formless realm, have a body. While the body itself is produced by external causes, such as the sperm and egg of our parents, which body our mind stream is born into depends on the quality of our mind and the kind of karmic seeds left on our mind stream in the past. By acting constructively in this life, we create beneficial mental habits and leave many seeds of virtuous actions on our mind stream. When we die, some of these, hopefully, if we have a good attitude, will ripen, enabling us to take a precious human life for many lifetimes to come, enabling us to continue our spiritual development with minimum interruption. Because if you get born in a lower realm, we may have created and put a lot of good seeds in our mind stream, but then once you get in the born in the lower realm, it's really hard to be born in a good rebirth after that. So it's, it's something that we really want to avoid. For this reason, spiritual practice, which concerns working with our mind and its intentions, is important. We are responsible for accumulating sufficient causes to produce future precious human lives like the one we have now. Okay, so we should not be like I was in Italy when I wrote to Lama Yeshi in my frustration with the people who were ridiculing and giving me and putting me down and giving me a hard time and saying, they make me create so much negative karma. No, my creating negative karma is not them. I'm doing it. I'm responsible for it. <laughs> Reflecting in detail on the specific causes for a specific, a specific rebirth leads us to the very subtle and profound functioning of karma and its effects. The specific action an individual did in a certain lifetime that is now ripening in a particular event. So this level of detail, yeah, this is an extremely obscure topic, one only omniscient Buddhas know clearly and perfectly. At present, we must, we must depend on scriptural authority to understand it. Nevertheless, we can understand the general functioning of karma and its results. 
Okay, and that's something that will really help us the more we put energy into that. We know that constructive actions bring happy results, and destructive acts bring suffering results. Reflecting on the actions we've done throughout our lives and the various intentions that motivated them, can we say with conviction, I definitely have created all the causes and conditions for a precious human life and have purified all opposing ones. Yeah? Do we have that kind of surety in our minds? Most of us find it difficult to say this with complete conviction because we have done actions we now regret, haven't we? Transforming our mind by practicing the Dharma affords us the opportunity to change this situation by accumulating merit, purifying negativities, and gaining realizations and studying and planting seeds in our mind. Understanding the potential and preciousness of of a precious human life to do this and the difficulty of receiving this opportunity in the future, we should avoid wasting our life in frivolous pursuits and engage in Dharma practice now. So any questions so far or comments? The week before last, when I was reading that sentence that said that this topic would um, result in um, self-confidence, it just was a jaw-dropper for me. It was like, what? Um, because, <laughs> you know, I've really heard you teach a lot about ethical conduct, being that being inspired by this topic. Uh-huh. I've been thinking about it all week and how I think maybe just for my mind, I have to have that piece of meditating on ethical conduct be the bridge between having self-confidence, because if we know the 10 non-virtues, mm-hmm. if we know what brings happiness and what brings suffering, and that you know what we need to do and what we need to avoid, for me, that brings more self-confidence, especially now this section you just covered, because again, it's looking at, wow, yes, I have still many regrets. Mm-hmm. I am not where I want to be. And that doesn't really give me self-confidence. You know? Uh-huh. So it's just this place that's kind of slippery for me. That this topic does not inspire self-confidence. It doesn't, yeah. Well, when, when we look and we, can, we ask ourselves, do I have all the conditions necessary? And we have to say no. Yeah, that's what this person who asked the question at the beginning is. Well, then, you know, I feel discouraged because I've been practicing now for what? You know, how many years? And I haven't purified all my negativities that I've created, that I've spent since beginning this time creating, and they haven't, and I haven't purified them in the 10 years I've been practicing the Dharma. Oh, so, you know, there's no hell, hope, and, you know, I can't do things right, and I can't stay with, with confidence, you know, that I've been doing this. But also look, you know, so that helps us, that thinking that way, instead of getting discouraged, we should counteract our complacency. Okay. But then we should also look at what we have done. 
and have accomplished, you know. And if you look the way, how many years have you been ordained now? Ten. Okay. So what were I remember knowing you before you were ordained. (laughs) Okay. Many of you knew her before she was ordained. Has she changed since then? (laughs) Yeah? She's changed a lot, hasn't she? (laughs) Yes, can you take that in? You've made a lot of good changes so that many of us who have known you for many years see the changes you've made. Okay, so can you rejoice at that and feel self-confidence because you've done that? I don't know. I think it can. <laughs> you better start knowing. But, this is important. But, you, yes, this is where I'm stuck, obviously. <laughs> and I'm not trying to beat myself up. Uh huh. This topic will gladden my mind. Okay. It does do that. Okay, good. It inspires me to practice ethical conduct. Good. I want to have a future human rebirth. Right. But somehow I'm stuck in not seeing that this builds self-confidence. Okay. When you practice ethical conduct, do you feel better about yourself? That's my point. Yes. Yes. So doesn't that give you self-confidence? Yes. And that's what I'm saying. I need that bridge in there. Okay. You can't just have this topic and go, oh, self-confidence. Boom. Oh, okay. Well, Yeah. So that's why you have to not just study the 18, you have 18 things, you have to study how difficult it is to attain, what the benefits of having it are, see how you've created some of the causes. Okay, so inspiring, we should go back to where, can you, anybody find the exact place where he talks about that? Oh, here. Um, Whatever activity, mundane or spiritual, we do in life, self-confidence is a crucial internal factor to accomplishment. We must have conviction and trust ourselves, believing that we can successfully complete that work. Developing self-confidence and appreciation of our potential are the chief purposes of contemplating precious human life. As we do this meditation, the conviction that we can definitely transform our mind and gain spiritual realizations will grow. So do you have more conviction now than than 15 years ago that you can transform your mind and gain realizations? So doesn't that give you some confidence that you've made some progress? Do I have to admit it? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. No, I I understand what you mean. That is ethical conduct that gives you the confidence. But that is completely intertwined with this whole topic of precious human life. Okay? Okay. Ethical conduct is not something separate. It's the cause of your precious human life. And when you use your precious human life wisely, you keep ethical conduct. Okay, so it's very much in there. 
<laughs> I'm not sure she believes me. No, but she followed the reasoning. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. It's connected to what Venerable Sangha Kadri was mentioning just now. And maybe this too. Um, I remember when I was at the full ordination in Taiwan, the nuns next to me were kind of like Amitabha's Pure Land or bust, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the one next to me was waking up at 3.30 and sneaking out to go and bow. You know, she, she was like so not into the Vinaya teachings and she would just copy out the Amitabha Sutra. And then one day she asked me, she's like, so what do you Tibetan Buddhists aim for? <laughs> you know, because she's like, it's Pure Land or it, right? And she's like, don't you pray to go to Pure Land? And I was like, well, we pray for a series of precious human rebirths. And she sounded so disappointed. <laughs> she looked at me like, huh? <laughs> but, you know, I see that. Yeah, it's, it's a the very different approach, maybe. Yeah. You know? And it's a reasoned one, too. It's yeah. looking at our present conditions, looking at the causes. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. And if you've been taught, you know, if your teacher was in the Pure Land tradition and that's what you learned, then that makes the most sense to you. You know, and precious human life, it's like who wants to be born in this messed up place with, you know, the coronavirus and and everything else and the leadership we have. And, you know, I mean, I'd much rather have Amitabha as president. Yeah. <laughs> you know, first Amitabha, if we can't have him, then Angela Merkel. You know? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, okay, Tara's second choice. Now, well, Tara and Amitabha, you know, they go together, all of them, you know. They're in the same party, so I'll take any of them, you know. I vote party line. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay, should we read the next little section here? So taking the essence of our precious human life. If, if something is true, but does not have much to do with our daily experience, it, knowing it is not important, and our lack of understanding does not bring great problems. Yeah? So if we don't know rocket science, you know, or coronavirus science, it's not a big loss. There's other people who... You know, rocket science, I don't know, come, come, go, go. But, you know, there's other people who can do the coronavirus. Okay? So our lack of understanding, it doesn't bring huge problems. Okay? But knowing the great value of our precious human life is crucial to this and future lives. You know, now how many people think that? That knowing the value of this life is something really important. Or do people think, you know, knowing rocket science is more important, you know? And knowing, you know, how to critique James Joyce's novels. Yeah? I mean, all these things can be interesting and fascinating. And if our mind thinks properly, we can relate them to the Dharma. But if we don't have them, it's it's not... A, a huge loss, yeah. Unaware of this fact, yeah, 
we will not see our present lives as significant and filled with opportunity. And so we risk wasting the chance to create the cause of happiness for a long time to come. Okay? Because we don't see the value in this life. Yeah? And that's what's so tragic about suicide. You know? And even, I mean, in the last few months, we've had two Buddhist practitioners suicide. And these are people who've heard the teachings, and you know? And, I mean, the suicide rate in this country is, is very high. And it's such a tragedy because people are wasting uh, an opportunity that took them such enormous effort to get in the first place. Yeah? And they, you know, I mean, that's what ignorance does to us, is it completely, you know, uh, makes, it makes us dumb. Instead, we mindlessly follow our self-centered thoughts, which will lead us to unfortunate rebirths. But once aware of the rarity of a precious human life, the difficulty of attaining it, and the amazing things we can do with it, we will no longer think our lives are meaningless. So that's why this meditation is important. So... My, I have a question regarding the understanding, and this can be applied to other Dharma topics as well, I think, but here, so understanding the rarity of a human life and its potential, and then being someone who then could understand that, but still not take the decision, not make the decision to take the full advantage of it. Yeah. So what? So what else is there besides sheer understanding what's what's needed to add to that to actually then go okay so now i'm going to practice yeah. so now i'm cuz un- understanding can be intellectual and we know the words and we know the concepts but that alone is not enough to keep us going in the right direction because this whole thing of ignorance you know we can understand something ig- intellectually and then ignorance just completely it makes us like a dumb animal. We can't see. So this is where um, repetition and familiarity comes in, the importance of that, where reasoning comes in, where imagine, you know, using our imagination to, to think of being born in a less opportune environment and thinking about what that would be like and, you know, how would we practice? So exactly how, you know, we're taught to meditate, but not just meditate once and twice about it. That's the thing. It has to be something that we do repetitively so it really becomes how we look at the world. Yeah, not just an intellectual concept. Yeah, because we can see even about other simple things. You know, people who smoke, they know it's bad for for their health. They know it's going to shorten their lives. And they keep smoking. I mean, that's the power of ignorance, isn't it? Yeah? And so here is two where I think it's very helpful to do strong purification. 
yeah, to remove some of that kind of obstacle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just find it very interesting that you can intellectually believe something, but then another part of your mind doesn't. Yeah. So, like coming to train as a monastic, it's almost like my intellect understood the teachings, but my heart was still completely in the clutches of the afflictions and living this lifestyle is sort of, you know, teaching myself something I already know in a sense, but I don't really know it deep down. Yeah. And it's um, difficult and also like strange, you know, because you have competing things within your own mind. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's it. I mean, we're, we're basically uh, a collection of contradictory <laughs> mental factors. <laughs> yeah. And so our job is to reinforce some and subdue the others. I think in the same vein of the power of ignorance, and this I struggle with more and more too, is having, you know, getting a little bit deeper and really having a really powerful insight that, kind of inspires me for a while and then that too just starts to <laughs> fade away yeah. and and there and you can't fabricate those that's why that's, that's why, why we repeat i get that yes but sometimes and that's it's why like, it's oh. a daily meditation oh. practice really again you know that's yeah i mean that's the whole thing. any kind of habit that we want to start anything we want to become familiar with. I mean, even you're studying in school. Yeah. You cram the night before and you learn something and then two days later you can't remember it. Yeah. So it's only if you study it and think about it repeated, repetitively that then, you know, it stays in your mind. Yeah. When I think of all the topics I studied in high school and college, I don't remember anything. Yeah? When I think about what I studied and what I once knew, it was like, gone with the wind, you know? Yeah. Just to add a little bit more challenge is for us to gain the familiarity of non-virtue we don't have to make any intention. We don't have to study. We don't have to be focused. Yeah. It comes without any problem. Right. So you don't have to get up early in the morning. You don't have, have to, to say about yourself a mantra when you're exhausted. You don't have to, bed. you know, really mind your mind. You know, so you so sometimes for me in the beginning, I just thought I could do the virtue in the same way that I could create the familiarity around the bad patterns. And then, you know, the wake up call was no. Uh-huh. Now we need to purify the, the other patterns, don't we? Yeah. So that's why if you practice Dharma, you never get bored. Yeah. I mean, lay people, they're all in lockdown. So many of them are bored. They don't know what to do. Yeah, nobody here is bored. And if you even think about it, we'll give you something to do. (laughs) And we'll give you something to think about, too, even if you don't do anything. (laughs) Yeah. 
so boredom is banished when you practice the Dharma. Yeah. A few questions from online. Um, so how do we con how do we conduct ourselves? So like we have our like mm, so we live like we are putting a fire out that's burning on our head. And yet, to proceed with dedicated composure in the Dharma. Yeah. So this is, remember we were talking before about how analogies, we have to understand them correctly. <laughs> and all the aspects of the analogy don't apply to the actual situation. So the idea when they say your hair on fire is if your hair were on fire, you would go do something about it right away. Okay, you wouldn't dilly dally. You wouldn't put it off for tomorrow. You wouldn't, you know, say, yeah, okay. That's the meaning of the analogy. We here put your hair on fire, and we go, how oh, my hair is on fire? What am I going to do? I can't do anything. I don't know what to do. And even if I go try, put it out, it's not going to put out, and it's going to burn, and I'm going to get all burned all down, and I don't have health insurance. And then what am I going to do? Well, they even accept me at the hospital without health insurance. My head's on fire, and what are we going to look like afterwards? And God, <laughs> you know? So that's not part of what we're to understand by that analogy. <laughs> okay? Yeah? So, of course, you know, if we understand not to waste our life and stuff, you know, then, of course, we want to act with composure. We want to be thoughtful. We want to think about things and not be impetuous. Yeah? and make good decisions, and analyze situations, and apply the Dharma, okay? We don't want to be like Chicken Little, you know? Remember Chicken Little? Yeah, this Henny Penny. Yeah, so the sky is falling. Yeah, so, uh, you know, that that's not the image of a becoming Dharma practitioner. <laughs> You know, an inspiring Dharma practitioner. So if, you know, the the meaning of that analogy is, you know, we're not going to waste our time. It doesn't mean we get hysterical and have a panic attack. And then uh, Jana is asking, uh, did you ever struggle with doubt in the path? And if so, was there an experience you had or practice that helped you overcome that doubt? Mm. Yes. At the beginning, I really wondered, how do you know the Buddha exists? Yeah. I kept on hearing, you know, about the Buddha and enlightened, I, not the historical Buddha, I knew that Buddha existed, but the enlightened Buddha. Yeah. How do I know that there's such thing as an enlightened being that it's actually possible? So I struggled with that for a long time. What, there are two things that come to mind that really helped me uh, with that. One was when Serka Rinpoche was teaching uh, a short text on the path and stages of Tantra. And when I was learning about highest yoga Tantra and generation and completion stages, it was laid out so clearly there about 
you know, based on the common path and, and everything. It was laid out so clearly, this whole thing of causes and effects that will bring the result of Buddhahood. Yeah. So that was one thing. I remember hearing that teaching and just going, wow, this, this means it's possible. The second thing was uh, Nagarjuna in, um, in the Karikas, in his treatise on the Middle Way, when he talked about emptiness. Yeah, emptiness and dependent arising. And because things are empty, then the Dharma exists. If things existed inherently, yeah, then you, you couldn't even have the Four Noble Truths. You couldn't have true dukkha, true cause, true cessation, true path. You couldn't have the Dharma refuge. If you don't have the Dharma refuge, you don't have the Sangha refuge. If you don't have that, you don't have the Buddha refuge. If things inherently exist, none of the path is possible. And so uh, really thinking about that, it was like, wow, yeah, emptiness. That really proves how it is possible to overcome the ignorance, generate the wisdom realizing emptiness, overcome that ignorance and become a Buddha. So those, those are the two things that strongly come to mind. And I think, of course, learning bodhicitta, too, that helped a lot with doubt. And someone else is asking that um, if you could suggest some reading on Buddhist ontology or epistemology. Uh, Buddhist what? Ontology or epistemology. Start. You can start with learning low rig. Mind and mental factors, mind and awareness. Yeah. It's hard for me to say because I don't know who this person is and what they've studied before. Yeah. So I, I'd say, yeah, study Pramnavartika. But if, you know, if this is a person who's only been in the Dharma a few months, I wouldn't say study Pramnavartika, you know. So it's hard for for me to say. Just the fact that you know the words ontology and epistemology tell me something, because I didn't know what those words meant. But maybe you studied philosophy in college, but you're still new to the Dharma. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, Nagarjuna, any of Nagarjuna's texts. Yeah. But if you're new, better to start off reading like uh, Geshe Jhampa text jokes, uh, text, uh, transforming adversity into joy and courage, or insight into emptiness. Yeah. But again, it's hard for me to say because I don't know the person who's asking the question. Yeah. And, uh, someone else is saying, uh, Venerable, if we do the Buddha meditation um, for, like we did from the retreat from afar, as our morning practice, does that add to a precious human life? Or must we seek to do a different, more focused meditation program? A precious human, I mean, um, uh, doing the meditation on the Buddha is wonderful because you have purification, creation of merit, taking refuge, generating bodhicitta, meditating on emptiness. There's a lot in that meditation. And then it's very good, you know, to do some Lam Rim meditation during the meditation on the Buddha, like 
you know, was prescribed in the uh, retreat from afar. And that really, uh, you know, then you're really, you know, touching a lot of topics and also including in the Buddha meditation one of the short glance meditations like 37 practices of bodhisattvas or foundation of all good qualities through principal aspects of the path one of those so that's also very very helpful to add to your to the Buddha practice okay so we'll stop here <laughs>